welcome everybody to kickserveradio.com. Tennis on air with Andy Zoden, the great Matt Svelander, former Texas Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine. Today, we are giving you 17 in Paris, a celebration not just of Matt Svelander's win in 1982 in the French Open, but a celebration of the French Open overall. As of right now, we're all lamenting the fact that there is no French Open being played, so why don't we take this time to take a look back at French Open's past. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and very proud to be so. Matt Svelander, as you know that we've mentioned before, now part of the ownership group at Gravity Fitness and Tennis in Haley, Idaho. Johnny Levine, who is the founder of the Arizona Tennis Classic, probably the strongest field of any challenger on the ATP Tour. And Johnny, I'd like to start with you today because we do celebrate Matt Svelander's win in 1982 at the French Open. You guys had competed against each other in the juniors. You played in the Orange Bowl. You knew that he was a great player. You knew that he was special. But I don't think when that happened in 1982 that you saw that coming or that you expected it. What were your thoughts? What was your reaction to Matt Svelander winning the French Open at age 17? Well, uh, Andy, I, I, I think it shocked the world, uh, the tennis world for sure. And, uh, what, what blows my mind about Matt's victory in, in 1982 at 17 years old is how he was able to handle that moment. Um, you know, he, he, he'd been watching all these greats, his, uh, countryman Bjorn Borg winning the, the French open. And all of a sudden he, this is his first grand slam main draw. And, uh, he comes into this field and, and wins the event, his first pro win. Uh, on the ATP tour. So really an amazing moment for tennis and uh, a 17 year old winning, probably the most grueling slam of the four. I'd love to hear Matt's take on it and really how he handled that, that pressure. Uh, how did you handle the moment? Matt's amazing. Thanks, uh, Johnny. Yeah. How did I handle it? Um, you know, I grew so much, um, every day, and I got a quick story. I was in Rome playing the Italian Open. And I was in the semifinals. I was up against Andres Gomez, the great Ecuadorian uh, player who, who later won the French Open in 1990. And there was an airline strike. Alitalia was on strike. And we were playing on Saturday in the semis. And I went into the match knowing that I would have to drive to Paris or I should correct that. My a coach had to drive because I was still only 17 years old, so I didn't have a driver's license. So we start the match, and I win the first set against Andres Gomez, and I swear, I think he's tanking. He is tanking, I'm telling myself, because he knows he might not make it to to uh, Roland Garros or the French Open in time to play on Monday. And before I know it, I lost the second and I lost the third set. So, okay, lesson learned. That's the way he plays. He was not tanking. He was trying hard. Uh, so we drive all night well, my coach drives all night. I sleep in the back seat on suitcases. We're piled up, and it was kind of like a bed. Um, and we get to Paris. In the morning, we call uh, Roland Garros to get a practice court. And I'm signed up with Jimmy Connors on the Philippe Chartrier. I'd never met Jimmy Connors before. I don't know why he wants to play with me. But, of course, Bjorn Borg wasn't playing that year. So I think all these guys that never won the French Open, they thought, ooh, this could be my year. So we start our practice. I am really nervous. Jimmy Connors is one of my big, big uh, heroes when I grew up. And I'm beating him after a while. I'm beating him. I'm up a break. And in the changeover, it's either 4-1 or 3-2. I'm up a break. He says something to me that is so absurd because we've never met before. And it was so mean. And I can't even – 
uh, repeat the words he told me. And I asked, I heard it. And then my coach heard it. And I said, did you hear that? He said, yeah, I heard it. Don't worry about it. Keep playing. And I'm like, how can I keep playing in the same level when Jimmy Connors just call me that name? So I lost the practice set. So I, I realized that the juniors is one thing. This is the men's. They are playing for a living. They're supporting their, the, maybe their wife, kids, people around them, whatnot. And I grew like crazy. And then, of course, uh, it just grew match by match. Ivan Lendl in the fourth round. I thought I was going to lose. I had an airline reservation booked. Uh, and then I beat Ivan. And then I thought, well, if I can beat Ivan Lendl on clay, um, I have a good chance to go a little bit further. But never, ever did I think I could beat Guillermo Vilas in the finals. Matt, when you talk about what happened with Jimmy Connors, obviously it, it probably gave you a, a mix of emotions in that, wow, why would that guy say something like that to me? But at the same time, did it maybe also give you a sense of belonging out there that if he didn't have enough respect for you to be able to summon the nerve to say that to you, that uh, maybe he would have been treating you like a kid if he would have been, you know, been nice to you about it. It would have been like he, he was treating you like you didn't belong amongst them. But maybe that was that was kind of helping you find your uh, your will to be able to stay out there with the players of that ilk in that era. Definitely, definitely. I had played a couple of main draw majors uh, before the before the French Open in 1982. I'd never played the French Open main draw. I made the finals in an indoor tournament, uh, big one in Brussels, and I lost to Vida, the late, great Vida Skirlaitis, uh in a close three-setter. So I kind of felt like I wasn't that far away. But yeah, I think the fact that Bjorn Borg was not playing, but I came up and had a kind of a similar game, not at the same level. Uh, I knew that. I think everybody knew that, but a similar game, similar attitude, didn't seem like I got tired, didn't seem like I made mistakes. And I really think that in that French Open, I think that the opponents that were Ivan Lendl and Guillermo Vilas, I think they froze a little bit when they saw me on the other side. Matt, um, did Bjorn Borg having won six French Opens prior to your victory, did that, did that help you? Uh, did, did, did you feel like, gosh, I mean, here's a countryman having won the French Open, uh, dominated the French Open. Was that, was that something that gave you a lot of confidence, seeing, seeing one of your fellow Swedes uh, having won that, that French Open so many times? Was that a big part of your, your confidence? Well, it did give me a lot of confidence once I was up against these guys. But uh, you guys have to remember that Bjorn Borg is eight years older than me. And he broke through on the scene in Sweden when he was 15 years old because he played Davis Cup for Sweden. So that's when I'm seven, eight, nine years old. I was told to hit my forehand with a continental grip, straight backswing and continental grip. And we saw Bjorn obviously looping his backswing. Uh, and we thought he had a bit of a semi-Western grip. But uh, apparently he didn't, but he was able to hit topspin. We were trying to imitate and play like Bjorn uh, when we were kids, of course. Uh, but uh, winning, I think, against the likes of Jimmy Connors and Guillermo Vilas, having seen Bjorn do that, uh, it didn't give me confidence that I could beat those guys, but it gave me confidence in, hey, I, I'm just going to try and play the same way that Bjorn plays these guys. I know I'm not going to get physically very tired, and I'm pretty strong mentally, and Keep the ball in play and, and wait, patience, see what happens, see if they can beat me. I was sure uh, as hell never going to beat myself. And I think that comes from watching Bjorn Borg play the same game, no matter what the uh, round was in a Grand Slam. Matt's 1982, you walk out onto the court for that final 
nothing to lose. You're 17 years of age. You're playing the great Guillermo Vilas. My suspicion is the atmosphere uh, in Philippe Chatrier that day was one where there was probably a, a lot of support for you in that match. You're a 17-year-old kid. You're an underdog. How could people not root for that? Your demeanor on the court was always very easy to root and cheer for. But then the following year, you come in and you play a final against a Frenchman, and they have not had a French champion uh, at the French Open in many, many years. So there's Yannick Noah uh, standing on the other side of the net from you. How much different was that atmosphere, A, you know, being the defending champion and maybe having that burden of expectations? I think you certainly went into that match as a favorite, but now you're almost in what I would have to expect is maybe a Davis Cup atmosphere against you. Yeah, I think I came into the tournament as a favorite, and I think that was the big problem for me is, is I had no problems getting to the finals, and I thought in the finals that, listen, Yannick is going to try and come to the net as much as he possibly can, uh, and, and that's okay. I'm okay with him coming in. I think I can hit passing shots. I can hit lobs, and I was just waiting for him to make the first move, uh, which is what I really learned from that match is you got to be proactive uh, um, hopefully while you're playing a match, but also going into a match. you got to have a plan. you got to plan A, plan B, plan C, and if the, one doesn't work, then go to the next one. And I didn't really. I just, just My plan was to just pass him once he came to the net. But, you know, interesting comparison is that, yeah, I was the favorite in 1983, a year after I won uh, my first Roland Garros. I, I've been doing some reading up on Rafael Nadal. The first time he won Roland Garros was in 2005. 19 years old. He was known as a young player, but he beat Roger Federer in the semifinals of 2005. Federer was number one in the world. Rafa Nadal became the favorite overnight to beat Mariano Puerta in the finals, which he then did and which set him off to win 12 and still counting. So I had a year to grow into that role on clay. So it wasn't overwhelming. It was more that I was unprepared against Yannick. I was unprepared to the 15,000, sorry, 14,996 people that was rooting for Yannick because my dad was there, my two older brothers were there, um, and then there was a Swedish reporter who actually uh, flew down with my dad. So there's four people rooting for me and the rest for Yannick. That was something I'd never experienced before. And as a follow-up to that, if, if memory serves, and when I close my eyes and I think back on the way that match ended – you almost seemed like, although I'm sure you were disappointed with that loss, your body language suggested that there was almost a part of you that was that was happy for Yannick and happy for France to have a champion, that, that you were out there fighting as hard as you could to win the match, but you were such a gracious gentleman about it. Was there a part of you that was okay with, well, I guess if I'm going to lose this final, maybe it'd be okay that I would lose to this guy? Yes, absolutely. I've played... Um in 11 Grand Slam finals in total. I lost four of them, two to Ivan Lendl, uh, one at the US Open, one at the French. A very, very unhappy customer uh, losing to Lendl in finals. But I also lost to Stefan Edberg in the Australian Open in 1985. Uh, we warmed up together before that match, just about half an hour before. Uh, I grew up with Stefan. I'm two years older than him. We used to go to junior. So I think that during the match against Yannick and against Stefan, you, obviously, you're fighting as hard as you can. But as soon as it's over, it's disappointing that you lost the match. But you see the other person. And in Yannick, obviously in Stefan, I saw another sweep. I'm like, oh, I'm so happy for you, Stefan. That's great. Cool. Now you can share it with me kind of thing. Yannick, 
I mean, it was just the, the people that ran onto the court. There was maybe 20, 30 people that were on the court, no security, on the court, dancing with Yannick. His dad comes running onto the court. He climbs over the fence behind me. I hear this thump, and I turn around, and there comes Yannick's dad, and he's running. And, and I've watched the handshake. Yannick hardly shakes my hand, but he touches my hand, and he takes a step over the net onto my side to go and hug his dad. So everything happened so fast. I even asked Yannick's friends in the locker room. I said, where are you guys going to celebrate? Because I want to see it. I want to see Yannick celebrate. So I went to the same nightclub. I sat in the bar uh, and just watched Yannick and his friends have a great time. And I think he just taught me how big it is, um, how important it was to know how to do different things on the court and how important it was to be proactive. So that's one loss that I would never, ever want to change the outcome uh, to is the loss against Yannick. Well, it started out as a celebration of Mats Wielander winning the French Open at 17 in 1982, and suddenly it's evolved into a celebration of Yannick, win- Yannick Noah winning it in 83 uh, for his country. But either way, both amazing victories in the history of the French Open. All right, when we come back, we are going to be joined by another great former number one, multiple-time French Open champion. The great Jim Courier will be joining us on kickserveradio.com, Tennis on Air with Andy Zoden, former world number one, Mats Wielander, and former Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. Don't go away. You're going to love what you hear with the great Jim Courier right after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. 17 in Paris, a celebration of not just the Mats Wielander victory in 1982, but now we are joined by another member of the Royal Tennis family, and that is a former number one and multiple-time French Open champion. And Matt, since you were the one that was able to wrangle this gentleman into coming onto the show with us today to help us celebrate your victory and a couple of his as well, why don't you take it away? Yeah, thank you, uh, Andy. Well, first, Jim, uh, thanks a lot for for being with us. Uh, You're doing all right, Jimmy? It's great to see all of you guys. Um, and yeah, Matt Sweer, uh, we're in Orlando, Florida. My family is here. We've been healthy so far. Uh, thankfully, Orlando has, has been uh, lightly affected. Uh, we've been very lucky in Central Florida thus far. But um, like everyone, we're respecting what the government's recommending and laying low and just trying to, to wait this thing out. So, Jim, I'm, I have the pleasure to sort of uh, introduce you. I know that America, Tennis America knows exactly who you are, but uh, your records on the tennis court, I was looking them up, and I know you won four Grand Slam tournaments. You won a, two in Australia, two at the French Open. You made the finals of all Grand Slam tournaments, and, and only Don Budge and Andre Agassi has done that as an American. Of course, you were number one in the world. Uh, and I, I think for me, what sets you apart, apart from – the fact that you won four majors is that you 
in certain people's eyes, maybe weren't the most complete player early on in your career, but you figured out how to play on every surface. You learn how to slice the backhand. You learn how to come into the net. Uh, you're an incredibly smart tennis player and, a, and now an entrepreneur with Inside Out Sports. Uh, you put on these uh, exhibitions in America. You work for the Tennis Channel, Channel 7 Australia. I mean, it just goes on and on. So I want to I wanna just uh, ask you, how did you evolve as a player tactically that then took you into the person that you are today? Because uh, you're, you're better off the court than on the court these days. <laughs> Thank you for that, Matt. It's coming from you. Sincerely, I know we're buddies now, but you're one of the guys that I looked up to when I was coming through the game. You were you were at the top of the game as I was entering uh, the tour, so uh, it means a lot to hear that coming from you. And you're a player that evolved as well. The way that you took your game, you know, your slice backhand was a huge part of your success on other surfaces. Your serve and volley, your your mindset was inspiring, and I was lucky enough to get into the hands of some great um, tennis mentors. Uh, Jose Higuera, someone you would have played against, certainly, uh, was a big factor. I worked very well along with uh, him and Brad Stein and Pat Etcheberry were sort of my uh, holy trio that, that took me from a good tour player to a champion. And the way that they did that was adding the elements that were necessary to be more complete, to fill in the holes, have a slice backhand, to be able to stay in rallies, learning how to play better mathematical points and play uh, higher percentage shots. Uh, how to maximize what my skills were using my physicality to be able to get in position to finish points with my forehand, uh, understanding how to neutralize other people's weapons, uh, and just basically make my bad days better. That's the, that's the key for every tennis player as they come into the process. How do you make your bad days better? Because there are a lot of, I mean, if you're going to be on the tour, as you guys know, you're going to have great days where you're just, you're excellent. And how do you get more of those days or at least bring your, your bad stuff closer to them? That was a difference for me. I was a player who uh, had an offensive mindset and as a result uh, could beat myself when I was not as educated as to how to play. So that, that's sort of my story as a tennis player was I was a player that had spotty results. And then I, I started to understand how to manage my game better. And it all kind of went from there. You know, uh, Jim, being an American and coming over to the to to the French Open, you had those two insane victories at a very young age. I'm curious, playing against the Europeans who really were masters on clay. You grew up uh, obviously with the hard true courts, and I'm just curious, uh, you know, how you got so good so fast uh, at the French Open against really the 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 experts on that surface. I mean, to me. What you did was was remarkable. Thanks, Johnny. It's great to see you. Um, I, w- I had the good fortune. Circumstances matter. I had the good fortune of growing up in Florida, where most of our junior tournaments at a very young age were played on the hard true. So I learned how to slide very naturally and easily and comfortably and confidently. And that that is a key. I had no had no mental block as to switching surfaces as a result of being at Volatari's at a time where we we could be. Your first hour of the day might be on a hard court. Your next hour might be on a clay court. Your third hour might be indoors on a Supreme Court. So we also learn not to be so surface specific as far as not even, we wouldn't change shoes. We weren't worried about the fact that we're moving from a hard to an indoor to a clay court in the same day. It didn't matter. We were just playing tennis. So for me, clay court was just another form of tennis. And I tried to make that the, the clay court my home. I tried to, to uh, use my skill set on it. I had good results as a junior on the clay 
at a later age as well at the Orange Bowl. So for me, clay wasn't something that I feared. It was something I looked forward to. And uh, as a result, I came with a mindset that maybe was different than from some of the other players uh, that came in with a bit more trepidation as Americans go. Um, but one of the things also, Johnny, that, that I think worked for me was that I didn't play the type of clay court tennis that, that the Europeans or South Americans were used to. Uh, they, they were more used to seeing players play a little bit more defensive-minded, a little bit more consistent, a little less offensive-minded in a way. And I think I had that, that ability to maybe uh, make them uncomfortable when I was at my best. Our guest today on KickServeRadio.com, the great Jim Courier, a French Open champion in 91 and 92, an Australian Open champion in 92 and 93. Uh, Jim, one of the things that we were talking about in preparation for today's show, which was to a large degree to celebrate Matt's win in 1982 at the age of 17, my question to you is to put your, your coaching and tennis analyst hat on and try to determine and help us compare and contrast what would be more unlikely, what's more improbable that a 17-year-old Swede in his first attempt at a, at a major Grand Slam main draw like the French would win versus Boris Becker coming along and doing it at 17 at Wimbledon? Oh, I think that Matt's winning would be a little bit more improbable because um, the amount of shots that you have to hit on clay, the amount of physicality that it requires is, is quite a different thing than someone who can overpower field the way that Boris was able to do uh, in the crash bang uh, version of tennis that Wimbledon was back then. Wimbledon's not what it what it was. Wimbledon back then the ball didn't bounce. Um, I, I don't know if you, you guys had this experience Johnny or Matt's but when I played at Wimbledon early in my career I didn't even bother bouncing the ball before I served more than one time because it was too much effort. The ball would just bounce and just sort of splash down like it was landing on a sponge. So you know, you could, you could run through a field if you had the skill that Boris did. And I'm not suggesting in any way uh, or minimizing it. I mean, it's an incredible feat what he did. But he, he had won Queens. We saw that coming a little bit more for, for him. But for Matt, you're going to have to hit so many shots and use your mind and your creativity in a different way to what Grass's creativity required. But it was just going to take more time. And with time, an inexperienced player can get exposed. And uh, so for me, just personally, I think it, it'd be easier to win Wimbledon, you know, than to win the French Open in, in your first look. Jim, um, I've got to ask you, because um, obviously I was number one in the world in 1988. Um, I grew as a player from 1982 and I won the French to 1988. I mean, I would not have lost a single game at Roland Garros to myself, 88 compared to 82. I played Pete Sampras at the U.S. Open in, in 89. I played Andre in the semis in 88 at Roland Garros. Um, I went away for a year and a half uh, from the tour. What happened when I went away? Because I came back and I felt that you, uh, Andre, and Pete, did you guys model your game more on let's say Boris Becker hitting the ball hard, but not really wanting to go to the net because that's what Becker and Edberg and Pat Cash did. But you don't want to play like me or Bjorn Borg because we didn't hit the ball hard enough. I mean, what, where did this style come from? Was it just an evolution of equipment or was it really you took what you saw that you liked or didn't like and turned it into this powerful game with no mistakes? Uh, I, I think a lot of a lot of that, the catalyst for that, would have been just the environment of Boletarius that Andre and I were in from a young age, where 
Jimmy Arias and Aaron Crickstein were kind of the, the torchbearers, right? Using the, the power baseline mindset, we, we did a lot of drills where we would just be in a, in a line, hit the ball as hard as you can. So there was a lot of that sort of ego, too, that came from, from being cloistered with everyone there and who could hit the ball the hardest and all that, that then became part of our game styles. Um, you know, the equipment was changing, um, but it was also as much of a mindset as anything. We were players that primarily grew up with Raphite. You know, I think Raphite came into being for our age group when we were in the 12 and unders. So most of our development took place with a Graphite. I know you were part of a generation that would have started in wood and then moved into aluminum and then Graphite. So, you know, we, we had a little bit of a different evolution. Jim, let me ask you about uh, Americans uh, at the French Open. And, and, and when you played, I'm sure you gained a lot of confidence with your uh, victories, seeing Chang and Agassi do well over there and having titles as well. But um, I'm curious, you know, today at the French Open, um, you know, you might have seven, eight guys in the draw. When you played, uh, when I played back in, in the 80s, you know, you, you'd have probably 25 guys in the draw. It's so different now uh, with Americans not having the success that you guys did in your era. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you think uh, the difference is today in today's game? Well, I think we first we have to start with how much more uh, deep the game is in general. I think it, it, it's so much more difficult these days than, than it ever has been. Uh, equipment has made it easier for, for more players to be competitive with the strings and the rackets and the lighter technology um the game also is quite attractive uh financial rewards are are bigger than they've ever been deservedly so and as a result of that a lot of people um gravitate towards tennis and it's less less of a niche sport uh globally than it is in america so one of our challenges which which has always been the case is that our best athletes in america don't always play tennis some of them do but some of them uh, go play other sports and in a lot of other nations tennis is number two behind soccer there's no reason that we shouldn't be competitive on clay, um, but it seems to be that we, by and large, are not. Um, for one, uh, I, I feel like John Isner can be an incredibly good clay court player because what he does well uh, translates on every surface from a serve standpoint, but what he needs more than anything in rallies is time to be able to get around and hit his forehand, and clay gives him more time than other surfaces. So... Some of it comes down to mindset and mentality. Do you want to be in Europe? Are you more comfortable being home? Uh, are you a, a driver's license player or a passport player? Um, some of our American players are, are driver's license players. They play their best inside the States where they're comfortable. They're, they're less um, happy going outside of that comfort zone, especially into a nation where the language is different. So some of it comes down to mindset, but also some of it is just where we are as a sport where it's so much more international and, and America – uh, we'll, I don't think we'll, we'll ever see um, 27 players in the main draw in the men's side like we used to, John. Uh, Jim, uh, famously, and I'm not sure everyone uh, back here in America knows this, but, but uh, one of your victory speeches at Roland Garros was actually held in the French language. Uh, and you're talking about being a driver's license player. It, it's, it seemed to me that you were one of the, one of the American uh, players, one of the first ones to really embrace the professional tour, going out into different countries, embracing the culture, because you have to learn how to be 
get good on the road when you're a professional tennis player. And I still see that what you're talking about is so true, not just for Americans, but also for Swedish players leaving Sweden and trying to get to America. So, so how do you, how do you prepare yourself for that? Is, does, is it as simple as what you said in your first answer, trying to become a more complete tennis player opens up your mind to becoming a more complete person, learning languages and so on. And it, and it just relates to your tennis. Uh, I think I think there's a lot to that. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah, I mean, I think being a curious person is is rewarded in, in many different ways. If you're a tennis player, um, you're out of your cocoon. You're not in a sports cocoon where you travel in a bubble with the team and, and everything's taken care of for you. You guys know we have to fend for ourselves out there, and you also have the luxury, which which sports team players don't have, of choosing your coach. You have the luxury of choosing the people that you surround yourself. And, again, circumstances matter. I was I was thrust into voluntaries because I needed to, to leave home to get with good competition and coaching. That put me in an international environment where I was surrounded by not only Americans, but South Americans and Europeans and Asians all living together, all, all just being people. And you, you learn that, that people are people and you kind of get rid of your prejudices by virtue of being exposed to other cultures and other people. And from there, then I was lucky enough to have a coach from Portugal. And then I had a co- you know, a coach from Spain and then Brad Stein used to go during his summers off from college tennis, he'd go live in France and play in the money tournaments there. So he's a, a big part of why I learned how to speak French because he speaks French. So a lot of it is just luck and, and also the decisions that you make, the people you choose to surround yourself with at Echeberry from Chile, again, living in America. But I was very happy to, to um, trust uh, the advice of people who weren't like me from a, a cultural standpoint all the time, you know, where they came from different places. And, and, um, and that served me well. And I think that curiosity um, leads to a, a more full life. I'm biased. I mean, I think my life has been, I've been really lucky and blessed. And I think, uh, you know, I've been open-minded enough to enjoy a lot of different things um, that life offers tennis players, like going out and seeing all these cultural sites and not just sitting in your hotel room. Um, and, and I hope more players these days are doing that as well. Cause I mean, it's incredible what you can take away from it when it's all said and done. Jim, you've always got your finger on the pulse of American tennis, and you, you, you made mention of that. When we look at what's, what's coming up, and, and, and as we come out of this pandemic, hopefully sooner than later, we're going to get an opportunity to see some of these younger players hopefully blossom into the kind of champions to which American tennis fans have become accustomed. And you, you talk about guys like Riley Opelka, who seems to be really uh, kind of creating separation from the pack. Tommy Paul, Francis Tiafo has had his fair share of good results, been a little up and down. Taylor Fritz. And then on the women's side, obviously, uh, Sophia Kennan winning down in Australia and obviously what Coco Goff has done to sort of set the world ablaze. Um, are you optimistic about what that group of players, and I know I've left a few out, but what they may be able to bring to the table as we hopefully eventually move forward from where we're at now? Yeah, I am optimistic. And I think this is a really critical time period for these players. We're, we're all sitting here wondering who's doing what and who's able to do what during this this dark period in tennis where, where we're not getting the international play. We're starting to see regional and, and domestic play. But just due to what where we are in the virus not every player has had access to a tennis court. I, I saw Nadal saying that he hadn't touched a racket for like a month and a half because he wasn't legally allowed to. Um, and I think that's starting to change, thankfully. But the young players who – it may not impact the, the veteran players. Someone like John Isner 
or a Sam Query, Steve Johnson, those American players, they're fully developed. They're fully formed. For them, it's about maintenance right now. It's about making sure physically they're where they need to be, where they're going to be um, you know, mentally fresh and ready to go at the restart. But for these young players, they're still in development. This is a critical time period for them to take advantage of this space to really work on the, the things that they don't get a lot of time to work on during the heat of battle when you're just, you know, going week to week in competition. So, um, you know, Warren Buffett famously, famously says, you know, we, we find out who is swimming naked when the tide goes out. Well, we're going to find out who did the work um, or didn't do the work when the restart comes. We're going to figure out who made advances. And, and I'm incredibly bullish for someone like Coco Goff, who had these limitations, um, you know, placed on her from an age standpoint that, that, she wasn't going to be able to play the amount of tournaments that she probably wanted to. And now she's getting, you know, obviously time's going on. She's getting closer to having less limitations as she gets closer to 18 years of age. But I have no doubt that she and her family are hard at work on trying to make her better. I've, I've, I mean, her dad has said it. We're working on her forehand. So when it comes back, it's going to be a strength, not a weakness. And I hope that that our American male players are doing the same thing because this is an incredibly valuable piece of real estate that they've been given through awful circumstances to be able to try and fill out their games and, and be, be ready to go and, and take advantage of this as opposed to being taken advantage of. Jim, I got to ask you because uh, obviously in Sweden, as you know, uh, we had at one point five players in the top 10 in the 80s the same week. Uh, Mikael Pernfors, who won the NCAA twice, was top 10 in the world and he didn't make the Swedish Davis Cup team. He said that's his claim to fame. Um, obviously, we thank Bjorn Borg for pretty much everything. Uh, I might have something to do with the guys that came after me. For you guys, I'm assuming that John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors uh, were, were, I don't know if they were heroes or, or idols, whatever, but they must have inspired you. The four of you, uh, Chang, uh, Sampras, Agassi, with Todd Martin and yourself inspired and next. What is the challenges for the USTA? Because the Swedish Tennis Federation has gotten uh, a lot of criticism and they couldn't figure out the program to follow us. I mean, it's not that easy. So the USTA, what's the, what are the big challenges that they have, you think, and the clubs around America to follow up what you guys did in the 90s and into the 2000s? I think some of the challenges in communication, I think some of the, the their false assumptions that, that the USTA or the Swedish Tennis Association can actually produce these players. It would be great if we could because the USTA is as well-funded as any other federation in the world. That would give us a huge leg up. But if you look at the results, obviously it doesn't bear out that that's the, the big factor. The factor is do you get lightning in the bottle? Does Corey Goff and his, and his wife decide that, that their daughter is going to be a tennis player or something else? Because she obviously could do a lot of other sports if she so chose but, it, but as a result of probably Venus and Serena's inspiration to them and, and the path that they, they trailblaze, they can see that that's a great opportunity for them. And now we have another surely going to be a, a major uh, champion uh, going forward because the family made that decision. And had they gotten assistance along the way? Absolutely. But how do you get more families um, interested in tennis? I mean, the, the reason – that my family became interested in tennis. The reason I play tennis is because my parents were watching Jimmy Connors and Johnny Mack and Arthur Ashe. And sorry about the yard work taking place. My neighbor does yard work on Friday, I guess. <laughs> you don't do your own yard, Jimmy? I thought you do your own yard. Lasting away. He's really pumping it out. But, um, you know, 
the inspiration was that tennis was was a, a part of, of uh, in the seventies, very popular in America and around the world. A lot of celebrities involved in it. And how do we continue to have the Serena's? And this is terrible audio. I'm so sorry about this. You know, I think, how do you inspire the kids? How do you inspire the parents to push their kids to, to be tennis players? Because it does take a nudge. And uh, I don't think the USTA can, can, can problem solve. I mean, I think, for me, I think, and I, I'm, I'm grateful, and I, we should all be grateful that the USTA commits the amount of resources to the program that they do. We shouldn't take that for granted. But they're the, in the player acceleration department, not the player development department so um you know I, and i think they do as well as they can but you need to have uh, as they say you're not going to take a donkey to the kentucky derby you need horses and you got to have the horses and the horses also to use another trite expression they've got to want to go down to the to the water and drink and have players who get comfortable because uh because there are not that many other great players around them Jim, it's been a real treat for us, especially the yard work. Um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, obviously, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Before we let you go, though, uh, we're going to ask Matt this in the next segment, and I want to ask you now, your best moment at the French Open, was it the win over Andre in the final? I mean, you guys had that rivalry at Boletary. It's a friendly, a friendly rivalry at that. Maybe not so much at times, but was that the big moment for you there in, in Paris? Yeah, I mean, look, it, that – 91 tournament changed the course of my life. Um, beating Andre in the final was massive on so many levels. But I, I got to thank Magnus Larson, that's his fellow Swede, because he had me dead to rights in the third round. I was down two sets to one, 4-2, uh, 15-40 serving. So I was down a break and, and down two break points to be out of the tournament, basically. And I, I figured that out, got out of that match. And then from there, I was able to make it through uh, and win the title. But without your Swede, Matt, I would have been toast. Our featured guest today on 17 in Paris, along with the great Mats Bielander, has been the great Jim Courier, a two-time French Open champion, former number one in the world. You can catch his great work on Tennis Channel. Jim, again, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, guys. Welcome back, everybody. More KickServeRadio.com. We certainly want to extend our thanks to the great Jim Courier for spending a little time with us uh, this morning, this week, in celebration of the French Open, which unfortunately is not being played at the time of year that we're used to, so why not go back in time and celebrate it? We're celebrating the win in 1982 that Mats Wielander had at age 17, uh, among many others. But before we get to more of that, I just want to mention uh, in my little USPTA spot of the week that right now, COVID-19 best practices links are on the USPTA website. So if you want to know what you should and should not be doing to make sure that when you reopen your club or your facility for tennis or tennis lessons, you can check with that website to make sure that you're staying in line with those things. Also, it's important to know that USPTA members, your dues in 2021 are going to be covered by the generosity of the USTA. More information to come on that. Okay, Mats, we're celebrating the French Open. You had three wins, 1982, 1985, and 1988. There have been some amazing champions over the past several decades. During the time that you played, before you played, and since you've played, in your opinion, if we're celebrating French Open champions, who are some of the people that, that come to mind first for you? 
Yeah, I think that that's true. There, there are a, a lot of players that were good on clay, and then you have really good clay court players. And I think for me, uh, it's evolved a little bit, but now we're back to Rafa Nadal winning, and he becomes the favorite. I think uh, on the women's side, I like to go first. I mean, obviously, when Steffi Graf was playing well, she was such an overwhelming favorite at, the, at Roland Garros that she was going to win it. She was in there. She was going to win it, we thought. Chrissy Everett, of course, uh, the same thing. Uh, Justine Henna, uh, the great Belgian with a one-handed backhand, she won it four times. So on the women's side, um, it was pretty obvious who the favorites were uh, because of the two out of three sets. Sometimes you did have the rare upset where Serena Williams came in as one of the favorites and lost in the first round to Virgine Razzano. Uh, so there were some upsets, but but in general, the favorites usually prevailed. And uh, I think it's the same on the men's side. I mean, we've had great players like Andre Agassi has won the French Open but was he a was he a clay court player not necessarily Gustavo Guga Querton won three times couldn't win on any other surface he's a great clay court player Sergi Bruguera won it a couple of times of course he beat uh, Jim Courier in the finals of 1993 Jim Courier we talked to um, he was a great clay court player in his own words he learned how to play on clay but he loved it uh, Ivan Lando won three times. So I think the difference between um, uh, clay courts and the other surfaces is that there was an overwhelming favorite and very often the favorite would win it. And uh, it's true again with Rafa Nadal. Um, of course, on the women's side, Simona Halep has to, has to go down as one of the, the great clay court players. And she's going to win many, many more. But uh, it, it's a pretty predictable uh, place and, and surface, especially on the men's side with three out of five and the great clay court players, they usually prevail. Matt's going back to your uh, infamous 1982 victory at the French Open. Um, I'd like to talk about or have you uh, discuss what happened in that semifinal match, that famous match against Ho- Jose Luis Clerc. Um, there was a situation, I guess, when you had a match point and I believe Clerc hit a ball that uh, that hit the line and the umpire called it out back then. I don't think they checked marks like they do now. And uh, the umpire came down from, from his chair and that game set match. And you uh, did something that you hardly ever see in, in, in sports and tennis for sure. And you, you said to the umpire, no, that ball was good. And you had the match. You were going into the finals against Vilas. Nerves were very high and you elected to give clerk the point and replay the, I guess they replayed the point. Talk a little bit about that because that really was something that uh, you talk about sportsmanship. It doesn't get any better than that. Uh, thank you for bringing that up, Johnny. Yeah, it's basically shaped. Uh, it shaped me as a uh, tennis player. And I, I think it's one of the reasons why I have still, and I've had a column in the uh, biggest sports newspaper called L'Equipe in France. I think my word in France is still one that sort of stands. It's, I don't know, they call it match rules or something. So it, it really, I did not feel like I had a choice. This ball was on the line. Uh, it was very clear in. It skidded away from me. Um, I've seen the videotape and I turn around and was walking to the deuce court corner and then I hear the umpire and all the commotion and the match is over, called in my... I, did, was, I didn't have a choice. Um, I, I have to admit that when I walked up to the net, I also felt that I think I got this match kind of not in control, of course, because it's a semi, so the French and 6-5 in the fourth. But 
I gave myself a good chance to pull this out, whatever happened in that fourth set. I remember thinking that. I remember thinking that I, don't, I can't win like this. Um, and um, Jose Luis Clerc was in shock, I think, that I, I, wanted, I elected to, to decide to replay the point. But I think a lot of players would have done the same thing because of the situation you were in. Because if I didn't do it, then I would be known as the player that, oh my goodness, he did not change the call. And I thought also to myself, I'm going to spend the next 10, 15 years in these locker rooms, and I really don't want to be known as a, as a player. Not that I would have been cheating, but clearly I could have changed it. But I'll tell you what, what's the most interesting is I got back to the locker room, and my two older brothers, Anders and Ingemar, who are nine and six years older than me, they had it driven down from Sweden for this match. Uh, and that's about a 20-hour drive. They were so furious. They said, uh, what do you think you're doing? We've driven all the way from Sweden and this is not the juniors anymore. This is the men's and you're trying to make a living and we're spending money and fuel and my, your dad is trying to get sponsors. So I get the, a lecture from them. But in the end, obviously, I've had a lot of situations where players have looked across the net and say, yeah, Matt, I heard the umpire call it out. But, but really, what do you think? I'm like, don't ask me that right now. It's on hard courts. I can't see the mark. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. So, you know, it's been only good for me. Very lucky to be at the right place at the right time. A lot of players would have done the same thing. But, yeah, it, it's shaped me and my image as a professional tennis player and as a tennis uh, fan and what some people call expert, which I disagree with. Just a lot of experience. I would say expert is, is, is definitely the case. Um, I'm surprised that they actually replayed the point and didn't actually give Clerk the point if it was a winner and, and they determined that it was in or you did. But I want to I want to put on my just my like my sports talk radio hat now, Matt. And what we like to do is we like to always create these fictitious arguments that there's really no true answer for. That's just kind of what we do. And I'm going to do that with the argument that people like to make as to what would have happened between the most dominant clay court, the most dominant French open player of all time, Rafael Nadal, and the, certainly the second most dominant clay court French open player of all time, your countryman Bjorn Borg, those two in their prime. Can you give us a little bit of a, 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 of a, of a com- compare and contrast what might've happened there? Um, I mean, obviously, um, um, First of all, I can I can feel people just sort of shaking their head that we shouldn't even go there in that argument because it's it's such a difficult. Obviously, with the equipment that's so different. I mean, really, if they would play at their best with what they had, uh, Bjorn Borg would most probably not win many games against Rafa Nadal. But you can't go there. So, in terms of in in relative terms compared to the field. Uh, I think that they are exactly the same. As athletes and movers on the clay court, Bjorn Borg was a step above everybody else. He was a little faster, we thought. He was handling sliding on clay a little better. He had a weapon in his forehand that a lot of other clay court players did not have, very similar to Rafa Nadal. Bjorn Borg never got tired. I've only seen Rafa Nadal maybe shake his head once or twice, once against Robin Söderling early in the match when he lost, once against Novak Djokovic when he lost. So um, I think the similarities are so uh, uh, close and I could not pick a winner between the two, Um, but it all has to be compared to the players that were playing at the time. Um, There were a lot of clay court specialists, I think, in the 80s and the 90s 
early on when Bjorn Borg was playing, there weren't. There was a lot of servant volley guys, and it was easier for Bjorn. Now, with Rafa Nadal winning everything, are there a lot of clay court players? There's a lot of clay court players that have grown up on clay, but I wouldn't call them clay court specialists. I think we have more hard court specialists these days uh, than we do clay court specialists. But, of course, they're both... I, I would be crazy to try and suggest that Rafa Nadal is not a step above Bjorn because he has won it 12 times. And that means you have to have a great clay court season uh, to go into Roland Garros. So I would put Nadal just ahead of Bjorn Borg. Matt, let me ask you about uh, Rafael Nadal's 12 French Open titles and where you think that stands. In my opinion, obviously, we know what, what, what it's like in the tennis world as far as accomplishments. But I, I, where do you put that? Where do you rank that in all of sports? Because that really is a feat that is... Um, it's it's so mind-boggling for us tennis players to understand you to to know that that a guy could win that French Open that grueling of a tournament twelve times and he's still going. I I have to believe that um, that that feat might be up there with with all sports uh, accomplishments. What's your feeling on that? Yeah, I think you're right, Johnny. I think you need to compare uh, what Rafa has done in uh, Paris. I compare it to somebody like Michael Phelps, uh, the great swimmer, uh, some of the gymnasts that come out that only have a chance. Of course, they have their world championships, so they got a peak at a certain time. And then you have the Olympics, and they got a peak at the right time. And I think for Rafa, he's tried to peak uh, during or just before Roland Garros because it's not enough to play well during the two weeks in Paris. You got to build up some confidence during Monte Carlo, uh, Madrid, and Rome. For yourself, you got to build up confidence, but you got to build up some fear in the locker room that, oh my goodness, I'm playing Nadal and it's three out of five sets. So it's not just for the two weeks, it's for four or five weeks leading up to the Roland Garros. And he's been able to peak every single year, pretty much, except a couple of years when he's been injured. So I would really say that that accomplishment in sports. I'm not sure you can compare anybody else except somebody like a Michael Phelps uh, who's been able to peak at the right time uh, in his sport. And um, Rafa Nadal is unbelievable. But yes, of course, you go to Martina Navratilova winning nine Wimbledons. Uh, it is an unbelievable effort as well. But Rafa Nadal, 12, I have a hard time comparing uh, a professional athlete to that record, apart from Olympic athletes. Guys, before we call it a day and put a bow on this celebration called 17 in Paris, Mats, let's let you finish with just where this tournament is in your heart. You know, you won it in 82, you won it in 85, you won it in 88. Just kind of talk about the overall feeling that it gives you uh, with respect to knowing that you have these results and what it meant to your career and maybe maybe even finish with your your, your greatest moment in Paris and we'll... Uh, We'll put a bow on this thing. Well, I mean, for you uh, guys that are uh, grown up in America and, and either on hard court or hard courts, really in Europe, uh, Roland Garros uh, is tennis. 
because we all grew up on clay. There were no hard courts in Europe in the 60s and the 70s. It was some grass courts in Great Britain. There were no grass courts anywhere. We played indoors, if you're from the Northern Europe, on very, very fast carpets. But we didn't really call that tennis uh, because it was so fast. We even played on wood at times. We played on gym floors with, with three, four different kinds of basketball lines. So clay courts is it. That's where you learn how to play tennis. That's where you learn how to construct. So for us... Roland Garros is really who the best tennis player in the world is the person that wins the French Open. Uh, and that's why it holds such a special uh, place in everybody, every European's heart because of that. Uh, to us, it's the most fair surface, uh, which I think some Americans would disagree with maybe because of the bounce and because of the slippery, slippery nature. I think what people uh, maybe don't realize about the French Open is that we are actually playing in Paris on crushed brick. So crushed brick with moisture turns into mud eventually. And you cannot put the ball away. The ball picks up so much dirt and mud. It's so heavy. Now crushed brick during a hot and dry day turns into powder. And when you see the French Open, we have all these famous uh, visions of the wind blowing in people's faces and you're watching, that turns into a very, very fast slippery hard court so to win in Paris you got to be able to to master fast courts that are slippery that you got to be able to master heavy courts that are literally turned into mud but yeah to Europeans the French Open is what puts the stamp best player in the world on Wimbledon will always be the most sought after title because of the history and the mystique that is Wimbledon but in terms of level being the best player, the French Open to all of us Europeans holds, uh, is held in the highest regard. Uh, and uh, I think it always will be. I think you would ask Roger Federer and he would say that he's a clay court specialist that was just unlucky to run into the greatest, which is Rafael Nadal on clay. Boys, 17 in Paris is in the books. And sometimes I think we get so caught up in Mats Wielander's amazing exploits that we we sell Johnny Levine's career a little bit short. Let's be sure that we don't check out today without mentioning a quarterfinal doubles appearance in 1989 at the French Open with Eric Carita. That was a hell of a run. Uh, so congratulations on that result, Johnny. For Andy Zoden, Mats Wielander, and Johnny Levine, we appreciate you checking in with kickserveradio.com. Tennis on air with the three of us. Hope you enjoyed 17 in Paris. Thanks again to Jim Courier for joining us. And until next time, thank you guys for being a part of Tennis Channel's podcast network and kickserveradio.com. 